This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I am a meat salesman that tries to get people to eat less meat. That genius business strategy, that is the brainchild of Dan Honig. He's a longtime vegetarian, although now he occasionally eats meat. And he's the founder and owner of Happy Valley Meat, which is a meat purveyor specializing in connecting chefs with the farmers and cattle people who responsibly raise beef. This is The Passion Economy. I'm Adam Davidson, and this week... Dan Honig. Dan seems like one of the least likely people in the world to become a meat salesman. But the same reasons that drove him to become a vegetarian eventually helped him identify a hole in the meat market, a hole he was uniquely suited to fill. So let's get right to it. For Dan, it all starts in New Jersey. My family is all lawyers. Nobody ever talked about food. It wasn't something that was much of a conversation growing up other than this is delicious. And I kind of stopped there. I'd never thought about what was I eating other than I am diabetic. I've been diabetic since I was six. So that's kind of food more came into this realm of how do I survive? How do I not have low blood sugar? How do I act like a normal kid? Like, But never the ethics of it, never what goes into producing these products. And so the first time I ever got exposed to that was in college. I studied philosophy and then I did um, a master's in bioethics. And I took this course on animals, ethics, and the environment. And I read Jonathan Safran Foer's Eating Animals, which if you haven't read, I highly recommend it. And I just tell me about it. What is it? So it's a book about where he kind of goes through the tradition of eating and particularly eating animals. And so he, he kind of he starts out saying, I'm not trying to convert you into a vegan, but he is that the whole the kind of like the whole point of the book. And he explores like, what does it look like to have so-called ethical meat? Like, what is all the environmental impacts? And he just kind of gets a very narrative description, not a lot of science behind it, but there is some and explains like, how does meat get to the table? Like, what does it mean to take a life to eat it? And the best argument that he really has for eating meat is that it's part of our tradition. It's part of our culture. And then he says, and that's not really good enough. And so for me, that didn't end me eating meat, but it, I, at that point I stopped eating meat and I put it on hiatus because I wanted to figure out if what he's saying is right, then it seems like we are doing something unethical. It seems like animals are having a bad life and farmers are having a bad life. Now, yeah. you know, everyone who's taken a college philosophy course, we, you know, you get these like crazy ideas and fascinating. Yeah. And, and most of us then don't 
change our lives. And, and right. radical. so what, what do you think it was about that book or the class or the teacher that so captivated yeah. you? So I had a really great relationship with that teacher. Uh, he was my advisor. Who was he? Uh, his name was Chris Schlotman. Uh, he just actually came out with a textbook on eating animals and the ethics of animals and the environment. And his bend was really on animals produce, you know, so much of the carbon emissions that are part of climate change are coming from animal agriculture. And so he really thought talking about food, in particular animals, was a major way with which we intersect and interact with our environmental impact. Probably one of the biggest contributors is the amount of like rainforest and forest and grassland that is converted from these carbon carbon sinking mechanisms that then when you have to clear cut a forest to have pasture for beef, you then release all that carbon that was previously stored. So a very big component of this is land use change for beef, which doesn't get talked about as much, but it's starting to become more and more part of this conversation. And then the massive outputs that come from these feedlot organizations, where you have you know, huge cesspools that are a regular killer of farmers, just the toxins that these things are releasing. You have in the South, very often, these companies like will have to give water bottles to their neighboring counties because they have contaminated the water tables. So there's that component. Then the animal rights component, where I believe we do owe animals a good life. I remember in my college experience, I had a professor who challenged the idea that eating animals is a bad thing. And even that, I mean, the point this professor made is, is it true that non-existence is better than existence? Because, and who knows, I, I don't know. Like, yeah. It's not like the choice that is, do those cows live freely or do they live on this farm and go to the slaughterhouse? The choice is, do they live on this farm and go to the slaughterhouse or are they never born and never... Right. And if you let cows roam around, like they wouldn't last for very long. They don't yeah. have a lot of means to take yeah. care of themselves. They'd be yeah. bare food and any other type of food right. that can get it. To me, it seems like, yes, like I probably rather would not exist than to exist sick all the time up to like crammed my knees, in, your, crammed in. Your children taken away. Children taken away. And like, you know, it's hard to compare human suffering to animal suffering. Like they're very different. You know, think the animal. Like we don't think like a cow. Like how do we know how a cow thinks? But it's very clear you can see huge stressors in their lives. And then the other third component is health. Like meat is, right, like a level two carcinogen. Processed meat does actually cause cancer. There's clear links to it. So from a health reason, these three reasons were enough to have me totally suspend eating meat. But I was like, but what is it? There's so many different inputs. So from there, I actually went and started working on a small pork purveyor. That small meat purveyor was Heritage Foods USA, based out of Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're getting your master's in bioethics. You walk in as a vegetarian, yeah. you get a job buying the carcasses of pigs and selling the food to restaurants. Yeah, and this gave me this like unbelievable opportunity to go to slaughterhouses, to go and see farms. And again, at this point, I was a strict vegetarian. I didn't even eat meat that we were processing. I just knew like this company claims to be different. And if they would, they claim that they're true, that animals live good lives, they were able to support our farmers, that that's something I can get behind. And so, you know, right, Jewish kid from New Jersey, then going to a slaughterhouse in Missouri, like it was something I never would have been able to predict being there. And I'm assuming you didn't grow up very religious if observant, if you're working in a pig right. uh, business. <laughs> exactly. And so I really got to experience like, you know, and this is, I, I see this as like a translator role. I, I learned to speak the language of all the farmers that I would spend time with and see what the lives of the animals meant and what the lives of the farmers meant. Like how do farmers tick? What makes them run? What makes like 
animals have lives that look like good lives. And then on the slaughter side, like that's that's a really that's a major bottleneck in terms of the agricultural community. From you have a living animal, you have to get it processed. You have to kill it. You have to turn it into different cuts that people will buy. And so that was where I really found a lot of my interest was understanding. What do the last moments of the life look like for the animal? The cliche I would have is, oh, I went out, I saw slaughterhouses, and I realized it's way worse than I thought. It's disgusting. No one should eat meat. But that's not what happened to you, right? Right. What happened to me was it wasn't pleasant, but it wasn't unpleasant. I actually had butterflies in my stomach. The first time I went there, not many people get to see behind the curtains, and I really wanted to go and see, you know, I was like, I sell pork. I need to see what's happening. And so I, I had them take me back to the kill floor, and there was nothing happening. And I was really disappointed that everybody was on break. And so I made, I made a point of, of going back. So I say, like, I'm jealous of your job, actually. I love learning everything. I want to do every job on the planet. And so you getting to speak to everybody about what makes them tick, what's it like to be in their world, like getting to see that is something that's, you know, you know, I'm very jealous of that component. And so for me, what I got from this job was, again, this was a world that I never had any experience with. And then I got to see all these people. I got to see all the systems that make everything work. But on top of that, I realized it's okay to kill an animal. We just owe them a good life. And, and I also where my brain goes is, we are going to eat animals one way or the other. And so saying everyone should be a vegetarian is not realistic. You can actually make change that you probably is maybe more realistic and more doable. Yeah. I always say that we're a clean needles for drug addicts type company. I'm no longer a vegetarian. I eat meat, but I consider it, I consider meat guilty until proven innocent. But exactly right. Like, People are not going to give up meat, no matter what sophisticated philosophical argument you might have concerning environment, like global climate change, animal welfare. We're going to be eating meat. Those systems are here, and what we ought to do is the best thing we can do, which is to make lives better for the animals that feed us. Easier said than done. Dan had enough self-awareness to know he had more to learn about the industry. So after he gets his master's, he stays on at Heritage and then works his way up to running sales and operations. Then he decided to open a butcher shop for them on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I'm just learning more and more about not just the systems, but the science and what actually goes into making meat. Like, what do, what do restaurants really want? What are some of the pain points? And the biggest thing that I noticed about being at the butcher shop Heritage made it really easy to get small farm pork by the cut. And this is the way that most restaurants want to buy. You say, hey, I want 12 ribeyes because I have ribeyes on my menu. You don't say, hey, I want 12 animals. Right. And so for us, you know, we, we wanted to say we knew where everything came from. It was really hard to work directly with farms on beef. Pork was easy because we just took from Heritage. and But beef, we'd have to buy whole beef and break them down or buy just cases of meat, which was anonymous. And this is like a very challenging thing that honestly, like four companies in the world do really well, right? It's is like, that true, really? Yeah, like all the major, 80% of the meat supply is controlled by four companies in the world. And that's because they learn this carcass balancing problem, which is you have a whole animal and you have customers asking for certain parts and you have to get this whole animal, which comes with, you can't do anything about it. It comes with all the parts it comes with and you have to find a home for every bit because you're buying the whole animal. And so even if you're making crazy profit on your tenderloins, you still have all this ground beef to move or the other way around and you don't make profit unless you sell everything off of the animal. So that's where we sort of realized that there's this big gap. That big gap, that's after the break. 
Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. If we're identifying an aha moment in Dan's story, this is it. This big gap he notices. But Dan doesn't act on it right away. To be honest, he's kind of burned out on the meat business. So he takes a break and takes a job doing computer programming. That gives him a chance to think about things in a really analytical way. He got to move away from the philosophical morality ethics of meat and think about scale, efficiencies, systems, how to track data, how to automate things, which proves to be really useful when one day he and a friend are talking about how they could change the food system for the better. And we're like, where are their holes? Where is it hard? I'm like, man, I remember being at the butcher shop. We could not get beef easily. Like, it was very challenging to get beef with a story. You know, when you have the name of the farm and the menu on the chalkboard, like, it gets wiped once it goes into a box. Once you have just the cut you want, very few processors find it valuable enough to leave the name of the farm on the meat because it's less efficient. And so we're like, I know how to do this. Like, we're going to use the same skills that I had at Heritage with pork, but it's going to be harder for beef because there's so much more ground beef and there's such bigger animals. And I know restaurants want this because I know, like, I wasn't able to do this when I was there and all my restaurant connections. And so... And why did you want to do beef? Because nobody else is really doing it. and Because they're so big? Because they're so big. It, and there's so much going on. There's Yeah, there's so much going on. There's like 32 different items that come off of this thing. And playing that balancing game, it's just hard. So he does it. He and that friend start Happy Valley Meat, that company that solves so many problems for so many people in the supply chain. He solves the problem for the restaurants. He gives them a way to buy nice cuts of ethically raised beef that come with a story about the actual farmer that raised that cow. Dan also solved a problem for those farmers who raised those cows. And farmers, the way the farmers want to sell uh, is they just want to sell the whole animal. Marketing and bringing inventory management, Sure, farms can do it, but it's a huge pain. And that's why the livestock auction still exists. That's why these, you know, people will raise beautiful animals and just sell them to the commodity market because it's easy. You're done, you get your check, and then you can continue to farm. And so traditionally, there are two options for farms. One option is you sell retail, where you go to farmer's market and you sell your frozen meat by the cut and you try to get your direct farm market story out there. The other is you just go to a sale barn, you get your price when you sell it. So again, remember we were talking beef exists, you know, it can be up to three years by the time it's ready to process. So you're not learning how much that was worth until you sell it three years later, which I find incredible. Like how many people would do stuff like that? You mean you have to buy a baby calf and a ton of feed and then hope in three years it all works out. That the price is strong yeah. and that whatever happens in China or Russia right. doesn't bring the price down, that packers aren't buying at that moment, or God forbid packers decide the price should be lower and flood the market with their own beef. Yeah, you're just very, very exposed to that. 
And so Happy Valley exists as a third option where we buy the same way that the Packers do in the sense of buying a whole animal, but we have agreed upon pricing beforehand. So you know when you're raising for us, we're saying, you know, this is what we're committed to. And we do a couple month out contracts, like handshake contracts, nothing written. Some farmers will even go out like an entire year and say like, this is how much we'll be able to take. They know the price ahead of time. They know how, like, so you can actually plan and grow your business when you know you have a customer and a price and you're like, this is what my product's worth. And and, but you're taking on the risk. We take on that inventory risk. Exactly. And this is from the, from when it's a calf. No, from when it's a finished animal. I so see. we're not okay. going all yeah. So there's still inventory risk that the farms take to raise that animal. And then we basically say if you can get within, you know, a year out, I'll say you need to finish this many animals for us. And so that sets the goals for the farmer to say, Okay, if I can finish, you know, ten beef a week and I can make, I don't know, twenty thousand dollars a week and then, you know, you can really start to work your business model when you can get what those inputs are. So from that point, we own the animal. The farmer's done. The farmer gets to go back to farming. Uh, We work with a bunch of small slaughterhouses. We have four of them that we partner with. And we have them, we pay the slaughterhouse, so the farmer's not paying the slaughterhouse. We give them our cut sheets. And it's our job to, this is like what we call the carcass balancing problem, is to find homes for everything. And so we run our projections based off of the amount of ground beef we think we can sell because that's our biggest limiting factor. And so it's like the hardest, but also like most exciting. And it's like, that's our, that's our moat kind of when you think of what makes our job, like why doesn't everybody do it? It's because there's a lot of ground beef. And when, right. when you try to run for it, we actually, there was a company that we worked with that tried to do something similar. They ended up donating 84,000 pounds of ground beef just because they can sell more steaks and they couldn't figure out how to get rid of the ground beef. So 84,000 pounds. <laughs> Remember, Dan told us that this is such a hard puzzle to solve. Only four companies in the world have figured out how to do it well. And they figured out how to do it at scale by selling unimaginable tons of anonymous meat all pushed through the proverbial and actual meat grinder. Ergo, exactly what Dan does not want to do. The magic of Happy Valley Meat is that Dan has figured out how to do this huge, complicated, ethical math problem ethically. Yeah, it's a rough business model to have to rely on not being able to sell a major component of the animals you're buying. Yeah, it's so I'm thinking of other examples. Like I remember I did a story on a used clothing company, which mm-hmm. they just would buy huge truckloads of donated clothes from Salvation Army or whatever. And the vast majority was sent overseas to poorer countries for nominal amounts. Mm. But they had this whole system, this massive system of conveyor belts and lots of people because, you know, one garment in a thousand would have enormous vintage value, often in Japan at, Mm. at the time. This was a few years ago. That was the big market. And the whole business was just going through unimaginable amounts of used T-shirts, used blue jeans, so that they could find the occasional piece that would sell for $100 or $300 in Tokyo. But they had to run the whole operation. It also reminds me of banking because, you know, in theory, the purpose of a bank is there's a ton of people who have more money than they need at any given moment who want to 
but they want to have access to it. They're willing to give it to the bank, but they want to be able to take it out whenever they want to, and they don't want to take a lot of risk. You know, I don't want, like, m- the money in my bank account. I don't want to give it to you to buy a house, and then you'll get take 30 years to pay me back. But you do want to buy a house, and you want to take 30 years, and you want to know what the interest rate's going to be in 30 years. And so the bank does the math to match people with very different interests. And obviously, this doesn't always work. And we have financial crises, which is, in fact, embedded in the system. But you're kind of doing that. They call it financial intermediation. You're doing meat intermediation, where there's unlike interests between the buyers and sellers. And so you... And you need some degree of scale, I would think. You can't do it with one or two cows, right? You need... Right. Like, yeah. there's one hanger steak per animal. So yeah. when you look at menus that everybody wants to sell hanger steak, you know, if you go through 500 pounds of hanger steak in a week, that's 500 animals. So there's definitely... So that's... I've never heard that comparison before, but that's a really interesting, and that comparison makes a lot of sense. So meat intermediation? Yeah. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know, Yeah. So now we get what the business is, but how does it work? How did he do it? How did he get this bold vision off the ground and turn it into a company? That's after the break. The typical person on the show is somebody who has some passion that, you know, they make wigs or they make tea, or, but it. It's a fairly low capital expense. It's a lot of labor, typically. And then eventually the business grows and they can scale. But didn't you have to start with a lot of capital because you had to buy a bunch of cows ahead of time? Yeah. So it's a very capital-intensive business. We started with a small loan just from friends and family. Uh, we, ha- we raised about you know $40,000. So it's just a loan, no equity, that we ended up converting into a line of credit with a social lending firm called the Rudolph Snyder Foundation. They act as a bank for us, and so they've been able to extend us a line of credit. And because we also, on top of, we act like a bank to restaurants, which is not a great business to bank to. And so the capital component is like part of that secret sauce is being able to balance and not, I could probably be five times the size that we were if we just sold steaks, but that's not the name of the game. And so being able to limit our growth, having good banking partners, but still, yeah, capital is always like it's, you know, we don't own a plant. We don't own any of our trucks. And so that's a, that's another. But you component. own a lot of meat. We own a lot of meat. That's on hooves. That's, well, now it's on the rail. They call on the rail. It. Okay. <laughs> on the rail. And, okay, so I want to understand the how the business works. So how many farmers do you interact with? Yeah, so on a regular basis, we interact with about 14 farms. Uh, we have more that will pop in and pop out, but on a regular basis, it's uh, about 14. You know, I know in the Northeast, a cow farm might have a few dozen out in the Midwest and West, it could be thousands, right? There's huge farms. Yeah. So we have some farms that will bring us every week, and those are, they're still small to medium-sized farms that will have a couple hundred head uh, in a year that are finished. And then we deal with, like, we fill the rest with little farms. So I might have a farmer that says, hey, every month I'll have four animals. Or someone say, hey, you know, in December my four animals will be ready that I raise all year. And so that's how we, we fill the supply with that, where we have some farm partners that are growing their business. All the farm partners are growing their business around us because one of my biggest compliments working was a salty old farmer told me I was the best deal in town. <laughs> and do you buy their entire herd? Uh, they're free to do whatever they want. And most of them, because we are the best deal in town, will sell uh, as much as they can to us. So we are buying some of, some of the farm's entire herd. And then... 
you then get the cow to the slaughterhouse, or does the farmer do that, or does the slaughterhouse pick it up? How does that work? Yeah, the farm delivers to the slaughterhouses. They're all about less than an hour drive from the slaughterhouses. And you pick the slaughterhouses? Yeah, so that's actually how we got started, was not finding the farms first. We went to the slaughterhouses. We just got a list from PETA. I think we were supposed to protest, (laughs) but we start going to all these different slaughterhouses and saying, like, who's raising what in the area? We're looking for high welfare, high quality, animals raised on pasture, no antibiotics or hormones who's doing this because everybody who has an animal needs to get it killed to bring it to market. So the processing plants, I call them the gateway to the agricultural community. Like they see everything and they can they they really served as our connectors and we had to work hard to earn people were really, you know, they see like my phone number is a 732 area code, like seeing like New York with like New Jersey area codes. People didn't trust us very easily. Like they were afraid we were going to steal their beef and run. Right. So we had to earn trust there. And then once it leaves the slaughterhouse, it just they drop ship it to your customers that you've identified. Is that so? The slaughterhouse, we give them a cut sheet, which we're constantly predicting like which cuts. Because another fun fact of this is beef is highly customizable. We have some core cuts, but a lot of them can be changed, like bone in ribeye to boneless ribeye to like you know full center cut loins and these things. So we give every week the plant a cut sheet that says, okay, for these 20 animals, cut them this way. We expect this many cuts. They put them into cases, but the name of the farm is on every single piece of meat. They put them into cases, and then we have a warehouse that we work with in Lancaster. And so then it looks more like a traditional... Uh, inventory system. It's just that we have inventory. We, we buy things we don't want for some, for some of it. Right. And then, so the top cuts go to big New York, Philadelphia restaurants? Is that... Exactly, yeah. And, and then what do you do with the cheap stuff, with the ground beef? So, again, we sell a lot of ground beef into restaurants and then also quick service. So Dig In is one of our first big customers that took on ground beef. And it's essentially this this argument that you know, like I said, for hanger steak, if you go through 5,000 pounds a week of, you know, any piece of meat, and it's for a lot of these quick services, it's not like it matters what cut. It's like we have this beef option, this chicken option, this fish option. Uh, if you go through 5,000 pounds a week of skirt steak and you get four pounds or five pounds off an animal, it's a thousand animals you have to kill. And that means a thousand animals worth of a thousand animals worth of environmental impact that you have to now absorb into your supply chain. With ground beef, you're producing 250 pounds. You vastly reduce the environmental impact and the number of animals, and then you can actually support small farms because you don't need a system as big to supply you with these little cuts of meat. And Diggin was the first customer of ours that really heard that on like that large scale, and they're like, oh, yeah, okay, we got a meatball. We're going to do this. And now we're working with like Little Beat Table and you know another quick service restaurant and Honey Grow, again, with the similar concept of how do you reduce your impact? How do you support smaller farms by taking larger cuts of meat? And we've learned to do this where we'll, for Honey Grow, we'll break things down into like stir fry strips for them. So they don't care which cuts it's coming from so long as it meets their specifications, that it tastes good, that it has a story behind it. And so by taking on an additional bit of that labor for them, we're able able to utilize more of the carcass to work with them. I've always thought it's a challenge. I mean, there's a lot of companies that I find interesting that come on this show that there's a challenge of having two messages. One message is because of our attention to detail, our food is better quality. Mm -hmm. And then separately, our food is better for the world. It's more mm-hmm. environmentally safe. Or, do you find that a challenge or do you like quality versus compassion or, or whatever the story is that 
people generally want one or the other. It's hard to have a brand built around both. Yeah, there's definitely some very clear tensions. The way that I phrase it that I, I most see it every day is the story gets me into doors. So when I say like the compassion, people care about farms, people care about farm animals. And so that gets us into like the conversation. But the quality will boot us right out the door. Like if we have product, you know, the whole thing, the whole reason we exist is to try to mimic the commodity system, to be able to have a case of meat, what you want, when you want it. And so the quality, like the convenience, we've been kicked out of restaurants just because like, you know what? This, your ribeyes are a different size every week, which isn't always the case, but sometimes that does happen where a ribeye will be, you know, a, a slightly smaller one week than another week. I'm like, yeah, they're animals roaming around in fields. Like, just like you and I look different, like animals look different unless you combine them into a single feedlot and, and really limit the ability for them to move and change. So that I would say is like the biggest area. So finding like there's, there's a lot of tension around that. Yeah. Yeah. That, so... How are you able to be the best deal in town? Because I would think the bigger packers, I mean, I, I would guess it sounds like they're much more cost conscious, but because they're not only able to sell ground beef, they're able to have a hoof business and a veins business and whatever. Yeah. So how, how do you beat them on price? Yeah, so they're incredibly cost conscious. They basically, the way it works, they sell their contracts to, let's say Walmart buys from Cargill a certain amount. And now Walmart or Cargill is set on the price that they're able to even buy the whole carcass for. And so they're trying to get their prices as low as possible. And so when they go and they buy, they're buying, it'll fluctuate whatever the commodity market is. I don't, there is some level of control I think that they have over it by being on both sides. So Cargill has live animals. Cargill is the one that's in Pennsylvania, uh, closest to us. So that's the one I, I refer to as most. They're one of the main four packers that we were speaking of earlier. Cargill has live animals and they have packing plants. So they're able to actually play pricing a little bit, which they get so if, dinged on. If it's a packing house market, they can keep their live animals off market a little bit longer. And then if beef is going for big prices, they can sell their live animals into... Yeah, and they can flood the market when they want to bring pricing down and all these fun games that they play. I, I see if you look at like the SEC, like, you know, knockboard, you'll see that uh, Cargill Mexico is like almost always on there. And so you have a less price conscious customer. The, the restaurant wants, I mean, they're, they're not indifferent to price, but they want a real quality product with a story, et cetera. Right. So you're able to charge them more, not as $40 a pound as you'd like, but, but right. more. Exactly. And, and then that allows you to be less, because I'm assuming like Cargill, like Walmart, I mean, they're making, it's a volume game where they're making fractions of a penny per pound in profit, but they're just hurtling enough volume through that that adds up to billions of dollars. Whereas you... You really need to make dollars per pound, I'm guessing, not fractions of a penny. Exactly, yeah. Like we, you know, the customers that we sell to, Cargill would never sell to. And so we're not Probably your entire business is like seven seconds or whatever on a Cargill plan. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. It doesn't even blip. Yeah. And so exactly like you said, we are able to consolidate the the chain so there, there are fewer steps in between. And so... And we also have more stable pricing. Like we don't change our pricing very often, which is good for our customers and also good for our farmers, especially, you know, we set our pricing above commodity and we stay above commodity. And I mean, just, that is, the golden rule of the passion economy is don't be in a commodity business right. and commodity defined as a price taking business where you there's some market out there that's bigger than you and the price is determined by that market and you really don't. 
you just have to take the price. That's it. You have no choice. And I mean, it sounds like Cargill gets to mess around with prices a little bit. And in oligopolistic markets, you'll see a few players who can do that. But the average farmer or the average purveyor, if you're in the commodity game, they're really, and this is a key idea in the passion economy, that for much of the 20th century, that was a safe place to be. Being in the commodity world, there were, you know, there's several generations of farmers and small packers and small distributors who, you know, there's grandparents who saw their grandkids like grow up and buy houses and have cars living comfortably in that commodity market. But I think whether it's meat or grain or car parts or, but with the kind of hyper-efficiency that starts in the 70s because of global competition, because of technology, there's less uh, friction in the system. There's less, there's more efficiency in the system. And as a result, just being that middle person commodity player, there's just, you you can't do it. Um, So you either have to be super scaly, you have to be like as big as you can be, or you have to be really intimate and make these like, tight connections with a very specific customer base who's willing to pay a premium for the very specific thing you offer. And you're a classic, you're a perfect example of that. Yeah, I think that description hits the nail on the head where, you know, beef, if we just looked at the beef we sell alone, like we sell a commodity product, but what we actually sell is the stories behind it. What we sell is the ability to make the life of a farmer and a farm animal better. And that's that's what our customer base is looking for. If we were to even try to compete with Cargill, like I wouldn't be here. I'd be broke somewhere. Like, right. you know, like it just wouldn't work. I have one farmer who he was explaining to somebody why he works with me. And he said it really beautifully. He said, he's in, in Northern Pennsylvania. He said, I'm in a corn deficit state surrounded by corn deficit states. I have environmental regulations that limit the number of head I can even put. Corn in deficit barn. means we don't grow enough food for our own animals. Right. We have we're to bringing, buy it from other. Sorry. Yeah. We're, we're bringing corn in from at least other two states, states over. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, the same price that I get for my beef if I were to go to commodity is the same price that somebody in Iowa who is in a corn surplus state, meaning they have lots of corn, surrounded by corn surplus states, and they have very little environmental regulations. They can jam pack as many animals into a barn as they can, really see those efficiencies. Like, so in Pennsylvania as a beef grower, I cannot live on the same weight, like the same commodity pricing as somebody in Iowa can. I just don't have the tools to do that and Happy Valley and having like high animal welfare. And, and this is what stands out for a lot of the farms they work with. A lot of them really do care about the animals. But another thing that they really care about is the financial stability that we bring them is like we can get them a bump. We can get them that much closer to paying off their mortgage. To And the stability, I, I think, is almost more valuable than just having a peak year that that's really high. And, and I will say, like, we do talk a lot about the industrialization of our food supply system. And and there is a part of me that feels like it is a privileged middle class and upper conversation because the fundamental food problem in history and still today in much of the world is hunger, not too much cheap food. Mm-hmm. And I don't like the industrial food system. I don't like a lot of what I learned, but I do remind myself that, you know, people were starving to death in America in the late 1900s. And now... We have lots of food problems, and there's lots of issues. I'm not saying this is wonderful in Pollyanna, but, you know, when America was an agrarian country where a majority of people farmed, 
we didn't produce enough calories to survive. And now with a tiny percentage of Americans farming, we produce enough calories to export to much of the world. And and there's much less hunger as a percentage of the population in the world than there was 150 years ago. And that has to be a good thing. That doesn't mean, therefore, we get we have to take everything that comes with industrial food supply and that there aren't any costs. There are huge costs. But we live longer. There's much less child mortality. You know, that's not just food. It's sanitation. There's other things, medicine. But I always like to remember that, that yeah. industrial food is not just this evil force. It's a mixed bag. Yeah, and I think for Heritage when I was there, that was a thing that I always really stood out for me was, you know, there's lots of really like beautiful small farms around the country. What I thought was so amazing about Heritage was what it did similar to the industrial system without losing the values that we care about. And that's really the same thing that I took it to Happy Valley is there's some of this beautiful efficiency that we can use to make high quality meat that comes from small farms accessible and part of everyone's everyday life. Like we can actually get to people by using some of these same exact tools. The important thing is to never lose sight of the values that matter and to be able to have the values that matter be traceable, be, or you can actually, right, like to buy an anonymous product, like you have no idea, you have some idea, but like, you, you know, if you stand against something, how can you buy something not knowing what's in it, like how it was produced? And so that's what I think we can do with like the industrialized system is add all the values and that clarity and that transparency right back to it. And then we'll have a really good system. Yeah, there clearly was something special about small distributed farms all over the place, but there's also a problem, you know, a local bad weather, a local bad season. Most human beings who have lived have gone through periods of famine, have known people mm. who've starved to death. Most subsistence farmers can't survive two bad winters in a row. And industrialization caused lots of damage to that system. It also, as you said, created all these efficiencies, and not just in food, in every sector. You couldn't have done this business in 1830. Like, it just, you couldn't have found enough restaurants and enough farmers and matched them. It just wouldn't have been possible. A hundred years ago, could we have done Happy Valley? We use, like, FedEx to, you know, that's how we started. Like, forget meat from the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, into New York City. Like, in less than load, you know, we started out with two animals. We bought two animals. Like, to get that on a truck to New York City would be astronomical in right. price. And so, but utilizing FedEx, probably one of the most efficient shippers in the world, we were able to do that. We were able to piggyback off of their systems. And their systems are incredibly complex. The less than a truckload business is really complicated. It's like, it turns out to be like one of the hardest math problems in the world <laughs> is how do I take a whole bunch of different sized packages ship them, and then distribute them to different locations. Like, that turns out to be truly a, an unbelievable problem, which FedEx and XPO and a handful of other global logistics companies have become masters at. And that is a great thing that that exists. And, like, your beef is on a refrigerated truck with someone else's cheese and someone else's <laughs> chemical product or whatever, <laughs> and not that it's infecting your... <laughs> right, it's not. Yeah, no, and, and that's... Like, that's this, like, crazy, absolute thing. Like, I would never want to own trucks in New York City. It is a Like, everybody I know that owns trucks in New York is always trying to be like, oh, I have to find my driver just called off and I can't fire him because then I'd have to find another driver and you won't be able to do that. It's a really hard and stressful job. I have this beautiful vision that New York City one day just decides, you know what? We have enough of this. Everybody, no more trucks are allowed in New York City. 
everyone come to the major warehouse and New York City should just do like a postal service of food deliveries because <laughs> there should never be an empty truck on the road of New York City. Like there's enough like throughput through here that there should never have to be. Yeah, that makes sense. Although I don't want the city of New York or the state of New York <laughs> handling or the MTA handling. Maybe just FedEx. Yeah. So this is where I talk about how Dan is such a perfect passion economy model. On the one hand, he has these big philosophical questions, these deep, passionate needs of his own to solve the problem of how to ethically eat meat. But his business works because he combines that grand goal with the very narrow and specific needs of some very specific customers. There are these restaurants that want to serve meat, but they want to do it with a story about where the food comes from. They want to do it as ethically as possible. There are also farmers who want to raise beef ethically, but worry that there's no way to make a living doing it. This has been a bedeviling problem for decades. And how do you do it in a way that allows for a sustainable business, one that doesn't lose money, but actually makes enough money to continue to exist and grow. Now, most people wouldn't even recognize there was a problem to solve and certainly wouldn't see that problem as a business opportunity. And not just a business opportunity, but a chance to both make money, make profit, and also ameliorate this ethical problem when it comes to eating meat. Dan was uniquely positioned because he knows the farmers, he knows the slaughterhouse business, he knows chefs, he knows consumers and the butcher shop business. And because of his computer programming background, he has the mental tools to think through scale, efficiency, the full supply chain. In fact, Dan was so passionate about ethically produced meat, he learned about every step in the chain. And boom, he sees this window of opportunity. So Dan's the guy who combines all of these things and, as I say so often on this show, creates a job perfect for him that almost nobody else could possibly fill. Now, I know that sounds Pollyanna, but this idea that Dan embodies, that's my passion. My passion is to explore, celebrate, learn about, share the idea that Passion doesn't just have to be some special little thing you do in your own free time on the weekends if you have some extra money to burn or some extra time. Passion, properly applied, can create a full, rich life, a world in which your greatest goals are manifest through a business, a sustainable business that brings joy and passion to your customers. It sometimes can be tricky. It sometimes takes people like Dan and me many years to figure out exactly how to put all the moving pieces together. But hopefully by hearing stories by people like Dan, we can learn that passion can be your secret weapon. Passion Economy is a three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson, and produced by Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy. 